The second reading is taken from the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 9 to 28, and it can be found on page 1179 of the Pew Bibles. No one is righteous. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away, they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where, then, is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law. No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. That's the word of God. As we come to hear from God's word this morning, then let's bow our heads in a time of prayer to God. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for your word, for all it teaches us, for all we need to know to live as your people, Lord. Help us now to have open ears and hearts and minds, Lord, to to listen to your word and, and put it into practice in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So the book of Romans, the opening chapters of the book of Romans, uh, if you go through these opening chapters from about verse 18 of chapter 1 to about verse 20 of chapter 3, you'll read about how there is no one who is good, that, that everyone is deserving of God's wrath and judgment. But then 
there's a change from verse 21 of chapter 3. Have you noticed it during the Bible reading? In verses 21 and 22 of chapter 3, we read that, that even though all of humanity fails God's standard, there is hope for us, though, that, that now a righteousness from God has been made known. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, which is fantastic news. This is the gospel. This is the good news that we need to proclaim throughout the world, God's forgiveness of sinners. Which then brings us to a very good question, though, which is how? How does God do this? And you naturally think this question after reading through these opening chapters of Romans, because aren't we all under judgment and wrath? How then does this work? Has God just decided to forgive sins because he's God and can do anything, after all? You know, something similar to this happens in some countries, actually, where at the beginning of the year or when they have a new leader appointed, the leader of the country grants a pardon on several of the minor criminals and sets them free. Now, it's the same thing, too, that we see when Jesus was arrested and put on trial. The Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, allowed the people to ask for a prisoner to release, to set free, as was their tradition, their custom. Now, has God done this, then? Has he just simply pardoned us of our sins, forgiven us and set us free? Well, the answer is both yes and no. Now we can firstly answer yes because from our perspective we've been pardoned, we've been set free at no cost to us. Now without us doing anything to pay for our sins, our sins can simply be forgiven by God. But then the answer is also no because God is completely just and holy and good. He can't allow sin to go unpunished. He can't have just freely forgiven us. There has to be a penalty paid. Otherwise, he wouldn't truly be just. I mean, human leaders can do it because we're not really that just, holy or good, like God often. So then how do we understand what God has done for us? How does salvation work? You know, how, how can God forgive us and still be righteous? Well, the passage we're looking at today gives explanation of just how God has saved us. And to help go through it and explain it today, I thought we'd consider three of the expressions or the statements that the Apostle Paul makes in this passage. He says, first of all, in this passage, that we're justified freely by God's grace. And he also says that this is through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And then he states about Jesus that God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. And we'll consider each of these in turn now. So then first of all, Paul states that we're justified freely by his grace, which is easy to say, but, but what does it actually mean? Well, here Paul is using language from the courtroom. You know, to be justified is to be declared not guilty, to be declared righteous, just, innocent, faultless. And this notion of being not guilty is a pretty powerful one in our society today, isn't it? I mean, as one example, um, 
something's recently been happening with the Catholic Church to do with sexual abuse. Uh, there's a bishop, George Pell, that was coming under a lot of pressure about uh, his situation. And while they were, because he was in charge of institutions and people suffered from child abuse while they were at these institutions, while he was in charge of them, as I understand the situation. And, and the people who suffered the child abuse were saying to Bishop Pell, you knew about this. You know, you knew that it was happening. And Bishop Pell was saying in return that, no, I didn't know about this. You know, the people were pretty much saying to him, you are guilty. But Bishop Pell was saying, I am not guilty. You know, he's wanting to be justified. He's wanting to be declared not guilty. You know, that's what's driving him. You know, and here in this passage of Romans, it's saying that we are declared as being not guilty. And not guilty of what? Not guilty of our sins. Remember, God's wrath and judgment is upon all of humanity because of sin and rebellion. Yet to those who have faith in Jesus Christ, we are declared not guilty of our sins. And we're declared not guilty by God, who is the true and final judge of all. And then we're told, also told that this happens freely by God's grace, which means that it's a gift that's given freely to us by God. We haven't earned it, we haven't worked for it, we haven't deserved it. It's God's gift to us. Consider the words from the, the first Bible reading we heard today from Isaiah chapter 55. In verse 1, God is calling people to him for salvation. He says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. No, he's saying, come. Come without money and without cost. Salvation, it's a gift from God given freely by his grace that doesn't cost us anything. But that isn't to say that it's without cost at all. It's a free gift for us, but there's still a cost a huge cost, a huge price that has to be paid, that had to be paid in order for us to be justified, to be declared not guilty, to be saved. Which is where the next thing that Paul says comes in. For he says next that, that we're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So then what does this word redemption mean? Well, here Paul, he's now using language from the slave market. Now, what Paul's saying here is different from the way that we might think of redemption because there's different meanings for this word depending on the situation. Now, like, for example, recently there was a show, a cooking show called My Kitchen Rules on television earlier this year, and as, as part of the competition they had, all the teams that had low scores had to cook again to see if they could do better. And what the TV show called this was re Redemption Round. You know, they, they tried to do better to make up for their previous poor performance, but that's not what Paul's saying here. You know, we don't get to go again to try and do better this time as if we're living in some giant redemption round. Now, what Paul's saying here, as I said, it's language from the slave market, where someone could be freed from their slavery. 
through payment of a price because remember Paul's writing in a first century context here which we then have to understand in the 21st century. So we can understand this as being that we have been freed through payment of a price. As Paul says, we're justified freely by God's grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And what is it that we're being freed from? Well, following this language from the slave market, we have been freed from our slavery, our slavery to sin. And how are we actually being freed then? As he says, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. That came by Christ Jesus. Redemption explains that we've been freed through payment of a price. This part now begins to explain exactly what that price was. Because it was by Christ Jesus, Paul says. Jesus is the one who paid the price. The price that freed us from our slavery to sin. The price that allowed us to be justified freely by God. And when we think about it, that must have been a huge price, mustn't it? As I mentioned earlier, if if you go through the opening chapters of Romans, you learn that there is no one good, no one righteous. They were all under God's judgment and wrath. But now, God has given us righteousness. He has justified us freely. He has declared us not guilty. He has redeemed us. Now think about the price to go from wrath and judgment to forgiveness and righteousness. To be able to offer forgiveness to all of humanity, to those who turn from their sins and believe in Jesus. Jesus paid that price. And so what price was it that Jesus paid? Well, Paul, he continues on to explain it. He says in verse 25 that God presented him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. And this is the price that Jesus paid. And the language Paul uses here changes again. He's using language from the temple now. He says that Jesus is a sacrifice of atonement. You think, well, what does that mean? Well, the actual word used here in the original Greek language is perhaps better translated as propitiation, to use a a theological word. And to propitiate someone is to satisfy them. And what is it that's being satisfied here? It's God's justice. Because God is a just, holy and righteous God. His justice needs to be satisfied in order for him to forgive us of our sins. And so how is God's justice satisfied? Through faith in Jesus' blood, Paul says. Which is where this other way of translating the the Greek as a sacrifice of atonement also fits. As I said, it's it's language from the temple here, the Jewish temple. And, And if you think back to the Old Testament part of the Bible that describes God working through the people of Israel, the Jews... You read that that first of all they had the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and then later the temple in Jerusalem, the place where God dwelt with his people. And, And once a year, every year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would sacrifice a goat as a sin offering for all the people of Israel, go into the most holy place and sprinkle its blood 
on the atonement cover of the ark to atone for or to make amends for, to pay for the sins of the people of Israel. Because God is a holy God. He couldn't dwell with the Israelites unless their sins were atoned for every year. And to atone for their sins, blood had to be spilled. There had to be a price paid. God couldn't just ignore their sins. And this whole sacrificial system of the Jewish temple was was a shadow of what was to come. They had to sacrifice a goat, spill blood every year for their sins because, because really, how could a goat truly pay for their sins? It couldn't truly pay, which is why they had to do it every year, year after year after year after year. But then what does Paul say now? He says that that God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood before a goat was sacrificed. And, And it wasn't enough, really, because it was a shadow of what was to come. And what was to come was Jesus Christ, who came to earth, born as a human, fully man, yet fully God, who lived a perfect life without sin, and so was able to be a perfect sacrifice of atonement for our sins. Because who could truly pay for the sins of humanity? Only a human, and really only a human who was free from sin. His blood was spilt, Jesus' blood was spilt in in order to once and for all atone for our sins. As we couldn't free ourselves from our sin, God sent us Jesus as that perfect human to pay that penalty for our sins, to be that sacrifice of atonement, that propitiation for our sins, to satisfy God's justice, to redeem us from our slavery to sin so that God could justify us freely by his grace. As I asked earlier, how can God forgive us and still be righteous? The answer is that a just price has been paid in order for sins to be forgiven. God didn't just decide to suddenly forgive us because it was the start of a new year or because we got a new Prime Minister. No, he forgives us because the true cost, the true penalty for our sins has been paid in full. The blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. He who was without sin who took on our sins, took our place and died so that we could be forgiven. Because as one commentator puts it, that blood must be shed, justice must be satisfied, death must come. The soul that sins must die or someone must die in that soul's place. As I said earlier, think about the price that was paid, paid by Jesus Christ, paid by God, so that our sins could be forgiven. You know, stop, stop now and think about that price that was paid for your sins, that was paid for my sins. And don't ever think that God doesn't love you or care about you. Jesus shows us just how much God loves and cares for us, the price that was paid. And Paul, he then also goes on to explain further in verse 25 and 26. He says that that God 
did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Again, how can God forgive us and still be righteous? Well, like this, God says, here is a demonstration of my justice. Here is a display of my justice. I am a just God and I declare all who have faith in Jesus Christ as not guilty because Jesus Christ's death on a cross paid the penalty for their sins. Justice has been served. But then how do we apply this passage to our lives? How do we live out what's revealed to us here? Well, I think part of the application is actually found in the passage itself at the end of the passage in verse 27 and 28 because there Paul says, where then is boasting? And his answer is that it is excluded because of faith. We should not boast. In fact, we cannot boast about our salvation as if it's some great thing that we've done, as if we've worked out how to get forgiveness and eternal life from God through our our own great wisdom or insight or good works. No one can boast about their salvation because no one deserves or has earned their salvation. It's all because of faith. Our salvation comes through faith in what God has done for us. These things mentioned here in this passage, justification, redemption, atonement. What then shall we do? Well, firstly, we should respond to God in thankfulness and gratitude for what he's done for us because he's done what we could not do and he's done it for us to restore our relationship with himself because he made us and he loves us. Our response has to be thanks and gratitude and praise to our God. And then also we should live as though we are saved, which means turning away from sin in our lives, not continuing to turn back to sin or continuing to indulge in sin or thinking that it's only something small, it's only a little sin, it's not that bad. Now remember, Christ died for that little sin of yours. And finally, we we should be proclaiming to the world what God has done. God is offering this free gift of salvation to all who believe in Jesus Christ. This offer is for everyone. People need to hear about this message of hope and salvation. People need to hear the gospel, the good news in this broken world. And so to conclude then, we asked at the beginning a question of how. How is God able to forgive our sins? How can God forgive us and still be righteous? Well, the answer lies in what God has done. He hasn't simply forgiven us with no penalty being paid. You know, that isn't just. Our God is a just God. There must be justice. There must be a penalty paid for sin in order for sin to be forgiven. And praise God that that he did what we couldn't do. No, praise God that he sent Jesus to be a sacrifice of atonement, a propitiation for our sins. Jesus paid the penalty in full for our sins when he died on the cross. 
Now, and praise God that by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross that he redeemed us from our slavery to sin. He paid for our freedom from slavery. And praise God too that, that he then justified us, that he declared us not guilty freely by his grace. Because of all these things, there's no boasting that we can do because we really haven't done anything. Now, all that's required of us for salvation is faith in Jesus Christ and turning away from our sins. God is the one who has done everything. And having salvation, though, we should respond to God with thankfulness, gratitude and praise, living out our salvation, declaring the good news of this salvation to the world that doesn't yet know God. I'll finish with the words that Paul says later in this book of Romans in an exclamation of praise for God. In chapter 11 he says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his path beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that, he should, that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. We'll bow our heads in prayer. And Father God, we thank you for your salvation, Lord. We thank you that you are a just God, Lord. That while we were in sin and rebellion against you and could do nothing to save ourselves, Lord, that you took action, that you sent us Jesus to die for our sins, to be that perfect sacrifice, to satisfy your justice so that you could forgive us freely. Lord, how can we ever thank you enough for what you have done? Lord, as we go out this week, Lord, help us to have grateful hearts to you, Lord. Help us to, to tell this good news to people that we meet. Help us to live lives that are worthy of your name, Lord. We pray all this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.